Thank you all for joining us again this week. Please don't let me interrupt lunch. Keep eating. Uh, we're, we know we are in a short time span here. So we covered a lot last week, kind of leading up to the cliffhanger of Wesley's conversion in his own language. So I wanted to show a quick video that sums up kind of what we talked about last week and also brings us back to a place of thinking of Wesley at his big conversion moment. So please continue eating. We'll watch this video, and afterwards we'll, we'll pray and get started. John Wesley may now be well-loved as the father of the Methodist Church, but he wasn't always famous nor successful. In 1735, when he was 32 years old, he set sail from England across the Atlantic, where, as an Anglican minister, he was going to pastor the British people who had colonized Savannah, Georgia. There was a sudden great storm at sea, and he was gripped with fear. To his amazement, the German Moravians on board the same ship were not. They were calm and sang hymns of praise. We are neither afraid for ourselves nor for our children, they said. Wesley could hardly bear to reckon with himself in the face of such faith. Over time, and in many ways, however, he had to search his heart and reflect on his life. He had been brought up in a Christian family. His dad, Samuel, was an Anglican priest. His mom, Susanna, conducted rigorous religious training at home for her children. There was no escaping Greek and Latin proficiency, and John and his siblings were expected to memorize chunks of the New Testament, and they even learned Greek and Hebrew to read the Bible in the original language. There was, arguably, even a miracle in his early years. As a six-year-old, John was trapped by a raging fire that eventually destroyed his home. Rescued from a second-story window by a man standing on another man's shoulders, he was a brand plucked from the burning, as he would later say. His mother deemed this a sign from God that there was a special purpose for his life. Wesley went through university at Oxford as a young adult. When he returned later to Tudor, he was invited to join as spiritual director the holy club started by his brother Charles. It was so called because the members vowed to lead holy lives. They studied the Bible and prayed daily, took communion, and visited prisons regularly. They were labeled Methodists for their methodical ways. In spite of these spiritual disciplines and being an ordained minister, Wesley seemed to always be mired in struggle. He lacked the inner faith he yearned for, and he knew it. I was indeed fighting continually, but not conquering. I fell and rose and fell again, he wrote. On 24 May 1738, something significant happened. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. By the providence of God, George Whitfield, an Oxford Holy Club friend, was preaching in Bristol around this time. Poor working people, especially coal miners, were coming to Christ in droves. Whitfield needed help to attend to their needs. Wesley was unsure about Whitfield's practice of preaching outdoors, but decided to lend a hand. He soon became the new leader of this growing movement. They were to be, in his words, a company of men having the form and seeking the power of godliness, united in order to pray together, to receive the word of exhortation, and to watch over one another in love, that they may help each other to work out their salvation. At first, his followers met in private home societies. As these grew, Wesley started classes of 11 members with one leader, meeting weekly. They started schools for poor children, orphanages, and clinics. Everywhere they could, in whatever way they were able, they strived to do good. Outsiders bullied them and hurled abuse. Wesley even received threats on his life. Nonetheless, he preached unrelentingly, convinced that the world is my parish. He rode on horseback and traveled far and wide, more than 4,000 miles every year. 
he never shied away from preaching in any place where people could gather, and once even used his father's tombstone as a platform. In total, he is said to have preached 40,000 sermons by the time he died at age 87. Thus, in the midst of clear and present revival, was the Methodist Church born. It eventually transformed the English-speaking countries of the world. Some historians believe it may have saved England from untold civil unrest, such as was seen in France at the time. By the end of his life, he was greatly loved and appreciated. His exhortation to Christians to always press on toward entire sanctification still rings true. He wrote, I always observe, wherever a work of sanctification breaks out, the whole work of God prospers. May it be so even in our time, and may we be encouraged by Wesley's life and faithful service to also follow... Let's have a quick word of prayer, and we'll get started. Oh, Father, our God, we are reminded today that we are little children standing on the back of giants. We think we can see so far, and we've done so much, but really it has been the faithfulness of the generations that have come before us. We are ever mindful, O Lord, that this is our watch, our hour, the time in which we make decisions on how to carry forth your gospel that began so long ago in dusty Judah, but has carried forth generation after generation, from lip to lip, passed on to us by Wesley and others here in America. We pray, O Lord, we will be found faithful during this watch, that we will continue to take that precious gospel and continue to plant it again and again, that it might bear fruit, that someone might even do Bible studies on what we did in 2022 one day. Help us as we enjoy each other, enjoy this meal, to hear your word. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things we end up doing today to study together and to eat while we do it is a Wesley invention. Part of the frustration in all that we do is that you're going to say, well, this is just what churches are supposed to do. We study our Bible, we get together, we sing together, we share life together, we do Amos, we do mission projects, we do uh, High Sky. But please understand, these are innovations or I would like to think things that Wesley brought back to the church that hadn't been uh, as practiced in Europe in the 18th century as they had before. So let me just remind everybody, um, we've got a couple of terms that we sort of have to learn as we go through all this. We'll try to keep those to a minimum. But one of the ones I do want to have you walk away with is the word pietism. It obviously comes from um, being pious, but it was, as we talked about, an enormous, I like to think of it as spiritual tsunami. I got my great tsunami there. It begins after the Thirty Years' War. So after 1648, remember Europe had managed to kill about half of its population, especially in Central Europe and Germany, parts of Sweden, moving further east, Poland, over Catholic Protestant splits. And there really developed a kind of Cold War where Northern Europe was Protestant, Southern Europe was Catholic. And even though the wars would not break out again, people were still out each other's throats. And you still hear this sometimes. Um, certain Protestants will get on the bandwagon about, you are not saved by works. Works cannot save you. We're saved by grace. That's kind of what you would hear in Protestant pulpits all the time, that they were still fighting the battle, um, but in the pulpit instead of the battlefield. And the church really looked around and decided, we've got to do better. This is terrible. Uh, we have proclaimed the Church of Christ, but we've just killed each other. We've destroyed Europe. There's got to be more than the rituals of church. There's got to be more than just the high ecclesiastical lords of the church. The people 
need to get it. The people need to change. And this was the pietist movement that originally begins in, in Germany, and it's going to be, like I said, the tsunami moving west. It's going to dramatically affect, our video said the English-speaking world, but I would argue with that uh, and say all of the western world. Even places that resist it, somewhat like France, are still radically affected by it, if not in a positive way. So it's this whole new way of approaching Christianity with the simple idea that if we follow Christ, we should become more like Christ. The longer you're in the church, the better, the kinder, the good you should do. And so we looked at several figures in Europe and Germany that began to formulate these ideas that we always should do good, we always uh, should seek together uh, to study scripture. Unfortunately, what happened before this is that the, either the priests or the cardinals or the, 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 the clergy, the curia in the Catholic Church would have control of Scripture. And on the Protestant side, it was the same way. It became the domain of scholars and uh, professors. You know, they knew the Scriptures. But to have the Scriptures actually in the life of the average person wasn't there. So there began this movement, and historians call it the democratization of Christianity, which is one of the things, you know, Steve and I are pretty passionate that there's a lot of this we need to bring forward. As we struggle as Methodists today, I want the control of the church to be in your hands. Because the control of the church right now is in our hands. It's really designed for the clergy. We are overrepresented when there's votes. We have dominance uh, in all of the committees. It, it, it's somewhat back to the 17th century. Part of our Wesleyan tradition is that the highest church authority should answer to the sweet old lady in the front pew. Because that's the way it should be. Our job is not to rule over you. Our job is to help you do what you're doing, the good. One of the things we're proud of in the United States, and I've been benefiting from, is we're the best medical uh, center in the world, right? We have our MD Andersons. I mean, we can go to Mayo. My dad's literally had his life saved at Mayo. All of that is another product of Wesleyanism, of Methodism in the United States, of pietism coming west. Who do you think built all those hospitals? It wasn't the state. It wasn't the government. It was churches. And this is that real divide that we began to see. And we'll, we'll move into discussions of America, but Wesley and the pietists have this idea that the government is not going to do it all for us. Now realize in both England and Germany, the church is part of the what? The government. Priests, pastors are government employees. When you pay your tithes, you pay it to the government. Still this way today. And they then in turn give it to the respective churches. So it is part of the responsibility of the church to support the government. Pietism comes along and says, yeah, there's better ways that we can do this. And so much of what we have in the United States of separation, church or state, uh, the idea that the church is what takes care of society, again, is coming from this pietist movement, is coming from what Wesley did. So you have this wave, you have missionaries, you have thinking, you have a new way of doing Christianity continuing to move west. Now I say that it moved west, it, it moved east as well. All of Scandinavia, the Baltics are all immersed in this. But for our perspective in America, it's headed our way. And one of the, the key people, obviously, is Wesley. But I want to stress for you, Wesley is not the only one that defines this movement in America or even in the West. Wesley is one of the surfers, I'll call them, right? This massive wave is coming, and Wesley is a unique person and brings a lot of ideas together, but he's not the only one. Uh, he sort of rides this wave. To Wesley's credit, 
he had a saying, if your heart is the same as mine, give me your hand. And we'll see him do this, right? He's, he works with the Moravians. He'll work with uh, George Whitfield. He'll work with others that are uh, maybe not exactly Anglican priests like him. Some are. Um, but the, the goal, the, the mission to do good in the world, to become more like Christ, to bring people closer together, uh, drove Wesley. So we talked about him a little bit last time, or at least his dating life right? He was incredibly educated. And Pastor Steve has brought you an article that uh, I, I think he'll, he'll take you through it a little bit later, but you will see Oxford education all over this. Um, I read strange things for a living. I, uh, and my f- free fun time will translate hieroglyphs. Um, they're easier than reading John Wesley. <laughs> he is... Um, he speaks our language, but it's 300 years in the past, and so there is a challenge. So don't feel bad if you have to read his sentences over and over. But he is, the, he is a priest in the Anglican Church, and by Anglican I mean English. It's the way of saying it, right? In the United States we say Episcopal. It's the same thing. Anglican and Episcopal are the same. The Anglicans changed their name in America because of the civil or the Revolutionary War. Nobody wanted to go to an English church after the Revolutionary War. So they became Anglican. But as someone reminded me before, they've had problems, so they've changed their name back to Anglican. But So Wesley is part of the C of E, the Church of England. His dad was a priest. He is an Oxford-educated priest. He was, after he received his master's, so he got his bachelor's, his master's, he was invited to be a lecturer, which is a distinct honor. Uh, They don't offer that to everybody. So Wesley is incredibly brilliant, incredibly intelligent, uh, driven. We see a lot of his passions coming forth. Well, I'll I'll just say this. Um, He still knew, like we talked about last week, that on the inside something was missing. Now, he was already a pastor. He was already serving communion. He was teaching at Oxford, and he knew he didn't get it. Like the video said, he's struggling on the inside. His heart is not really there. He still doubts. So I think in order to sort of combat this, he continues to read. He has his holy club, which is a combination of his friends and his brother, where they commit themselves uh, to doing good in the world, to, again, sort of advancing this pietism. Uh, They signed oaths that they wouldn't get married unless they had to. Think of all the crazy fraternity stunts you pulled. Um, They would regularly fast together. They would meet together. And there was scandal about what they were doing. First things they were called before Methodists were enthusiasts. Now again, we speak the same language, but the words are very different. Do you know what an 18th century enthusiast is? It's a radical. It's an extremist. It's a religious nut. It's a David Koresh. That's what other people at Oxford thought of him. So they were enthusiasts, they were Methodists. They thought they could methodically plod their way into becoming holy people. And this was just seen as as nonsense. Uh, It was all this radical stuff coming from the continent. They took their religions too seriously. I mean, think about it. You're going to have a feast with friends. And you ask Wesley, why don't you come over? You know, we'll we'll have brandy and, and cigars and it'll be great. I'm fasting. I'm praying the Psalms. Oh, you big dork. You know, just just come on. And then it got a little bit harder of an edge because even though he had the trappings and the, the blessing, if you will, of the Anglican church, he doesn't, he doesn't act like a good member of the government. Some of the things that he's saying about uh, we should build orphanages, we should, and by we... He means people, not the government, but we, we should be doing these kind of things. And it does turn into, 
you're you're kind of a revolutionary. You're you're kind of pushing the bubble here. Our job as Anglican priests is to take care of people in our parish. And you may not understand that reference. So the Anglican church divides itself up into regions. So each church has its own parish. And if you're appointed as a priest in that parish, you're responsible for all people that live in that area. Now, it wasn't what church they went to. Everybody's supposed to go to your church. You're the government church. So as long as you took care of the people in that parish... You're doing your job. You could not, however, go to somebody else's parish and take their members, right? This was rustling. This was unprofessional behavior. And you heard in the video, what did Wesley say? Where is his parish? The world is my parish. And all of his Oxford buddies rolled their eyes and said, Oh, God, you know, really, dude? Really, Mr. Overachiever? But it's that spirit of taking your Christianity faithfully, seriously, that is the birth of Methodism. Remember, he will get on a ship as a missionary. And even though he'd been so serious about this, he has these doubts. And remember what happens, the three-month crossing of the Atlantic, horrible storm. Who does he see in the ship? The Moravians, the the Germans. As United Methodists, remember, we united with the Brethren Church in 1968. So it was the Methodists and the Brethrens. In this time, in Wesley's diaries, they're called Moravians, but they called themselves Brethrens. These are more German pietists. And Wesley looked at them and said, they're not clergy. They're not pastors. And yet they're singing hymns. They're singing uh, psalms as I'm crying and vomiting, shaking like I'm going to die. Something is missing inside of me. You know, it's another thing that pietism brings. Um, There's sacred church music, and then there's hymns. So think about the difference between the glory patri and amazing grace. Amazing grace is pietism, is a song, a, a story that comes in our life. We sing amazing grace at our funeral, right? Steve and I were joking about this. Nobody tells us, would you sing the glory patria at my funeral? I mean, it's, it's what the Anglican church does. There's nothing wrong with it. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. But that's church music. That's the way it was in the 18th century. You know, we have the music in church, and then we have music outside of church. Don't, don't mix the two. And Wesley said, no, no, no. It, it, these should be our songs. This should be our life. We should love God, not because the government tells us to, but it's because... We love God, and we want to become more like him. So he goes to Savannah, Georgia. But along the way, he played um, Date the Passengers, right? After he had this near-death experience, there was a young lady who needed some tutoring in French. A young... uh, Hopke, what's her first name? Hopke, Hopke. Hopke, what's her first name? Susanna? Sophie. Sophie Hopke. Sophie. Yeah. Um... Young lady, uh, Wesley suddenly forgets his little, uh-huh, I won't get married unless I have to vow. And he is, he is interested in her, and she is young and I think wants to get married. He's in his 30s, which all that education, it, it takes some time. But So you guys remember the story. He's in the United States. He's still trying to visit with the Moravians, trying to understand why he doesn't feel alive, why he doesn't feel this connection with Christ. Uh, The Moravians say, yeah, maybe before you get married, you should focus on that. You can figure it out. So he doesn't say anything to her. He just stops talking to her. Uh, She gets the hint and moves on, marries somebody else. But the problem is, of course, uh, Wesley is still their pastor. And so Wesley doesn't take this well. He ends up denying communion to both of them. And again, this is probably what he was talking about. You know, I'm trying to be this man of God. I have my failures and I have my uh, successes. Um, It's really bad when you have a congregant come forward and say, I'd like communion. And you tell them, no. And to your new husband, no. 
Um, one of the things you'll never see in the Methodist Church is we never turn people away from communion. Young, old, church member, non-church member, it doesn't matter. Everybody is open to God's grace. And it's ironic that the person who <laughs> helps found our denomination had that problem with his ex-girlfriend. Um, so he ends up getting sued. It's a big knockdown drag out. He ends up having to flee the colonies after about three years. He's upset the governor. He's upset everybody. It's just a disaster. And so he is what we would call today depressed. He's broken. He gets back to England and is just a failure. And you think about it. He had all the pedigree. He had all the education. He had all the official. He wasn't pastor. He was a priest. Some of his friends trying to help him out, take him once again to a German pietist Moravian meeting and hearing uh, a commentary read, the preface to Luther's preface to Romans. I mean, it's, it's an introduction to the book on Romans. Romans is not the easiest book in the world, but it clicks. Something happens. And as disconcerting as it will be for a lot of people, he says, this was my conversion. Everything else was leading up to this moment when I knew, in his words, his 18th century words, um, I knew Christ had atoned for my sins, that my heart, and he's borrowing this from Scripture, was strangely warmed. You know, they accused him of being an enthusiast, Strangely, it's warmed. You know, he didn't say my head blew up, but it, it was as close as he could get. But what he means by that, he subsequently says, is that there's a difference in his mind between justification and sanctification. And these are two hugely debated, fought over 18th century theological terms that I have Pastor Steve here today to explain. Are you going to talk about those windows? Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Why, why don't you do them? Yeah. I'll, I'll, we got stained glass in our sanctuary. So even as Pastor Kurt was talking about, um, about Wesley's Aldersgate conversion experience, if you'll, look, if you'll go to the sanctuary sometime and look at the, at the wall, that is, that is John Wesley's story written into our stained glass windows. So this is Luther. So we have... In, in our sanctuary, we have sort of the progression of teachers of Scripture, starting with the biblical ones, Paul, Peter, yeah. and so, then we have Luther. So the guy at, the, the guy at Aldersgate Street is reading Luther's preface to the book of what? Romans. Paul is the, on the other side of the window. Paul, who wrote Romans, is in the first window. Luther is in the second window. Wesley is in the third window, right? And so that is, so that's the intent behind uh, those three windows being being there. And then, so that's kind of the the movement in England, right? And then the the fourth window on that side is Francis Asbury, and that will come. We'll talk about Francis Asbury, right? And the next week or the week after, uh, because that becomes he becomes very very important for what Methodist. Methodism does in our our nation, but is Pastor Kurt has uh, gotten us to uh, John Wesley's converting experience uh, that happened in 1738. The action in the movement really started taking place uh, in about two years, about a year and a half or two years later. Uh, Charles, no, not Charles, George. Whitfield, who was also a member of the Holy Club back at Oxford, um, had, uh, and you saw it in the video, had uh, all these people were coming to faith in this city called Bristol, which is into the west. Uh, you know what the nickname of Bristol is? It's something. There's something uh, very, very important about Bristol. And uh, so all these people, and then George Whitfield was about to leave to go to America. So as Pastor Kurt said, there's these other people that are involved. Whitfield did a lot of work, Methodist work, in, in uh, America. And so, but these people needed a leader. And so Wesley goes to to uh, to Bristol to start to lead this group. And that is where quote-unquote, Methodism. So we've been talking about Wesley, right? Now, Methodism 
starts to take its shape is in Bristol. Now, there are these levels, that's a good way to put it, I think, these levels of Methodism. It's called the society, then the class, then the band, and then the select band. Those are kind of the levels of Methodism. The society was be now. Remember, these people are members of the Church of England too. Uh, some of them, some of them were, some of them weren't. It was not a church. It was a group of people committed to growing in their in their life, in their heart with God, being committed to that. So they would have, they they uh, they created this uh, preaching house in uh, Bristol called the New Room. Get this, Wesley and others would preach at the New Room at five in the morning and at seven at night, and it would be full. Why would people do that? Because they deeply desired. To move from this place of just being saved, but of being to being sanctified, right? So there's this, there's all of these binaries, for lack of a better word, in Wesley's understanding of faith. There is justification, that that moment when you cry out to God, God save me from my sins, and then there is sanctification, this life of growing in our in our relationship with God and becoming more like him. Um, That is what John Wesley believed was the reason why the Methodists were raised up. It is to release out into the world this vision that people could actually be like Jesus. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And what do you say to that? Well, most people say, there's no way I can be perfect. Well, that's not the vision of the Methodist. The vision of the Methodist is that life can be arranged in such a way as that we can progressively move into this uh, this life of there's all different ways to say it holiness Christian perfection sanctification they all mean the exact same thing right that is the reason John Wesley believed that the Methodists were raised up and it's it's very hard to explain how this movement just struck caught fire in England. These people that were outcast all of a sudden became a part of this movement and they begin to be changed. This, I'm not going to go through all of this uh, today, uh, but I just want you to read this. It just kind of just, tonight or sometime this afternoon, just read this and kind of picture yourself in the 18th century uh, in England and these coal miners and people who were very having a very hard time uh, making it in life, uh, they've had this place to experience God's love and His transformation in a very powerful sort of way. I want you to read. Look at that first first uh, paragraph. I'm going to read read it. I've also got it up on the screen. It's a very famous quote from Wesley. He said, this, he said this late in his life, uh, just a few years before he died. Can you imagine being the leader of a movement and being able to say this, that the people that you have been a part of raising up will never cease to exist on the planet? Wow. I am not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid, lest they only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. As Pastor Kurtz unpacked for us what the pietists did, that's exactly what they were doing, is that they were seeing this form of religion that had been wrought by war. And they had taken it out of just this 
Okay, that, this is something you do because my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents did. Uh, I was baptized into the church because that's what everybody has done. That is the form of religion. And they moved it to this place. The Methodists moved it to this place of, no, there's power. There is power that God can release in your life through the Holy Spirit to actually become more like Jesus. Um, So, justification, sanctification, form, and power. These are words that Wesley uses all of the time uh, in his teaching. But then notice what he says. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast to both the doctrine. So here's three things. The doctrine, the spirit, and the discipline with which they first set out. And so that's what Pastor Kurt and I are trying to do in these, these lunches with you is to kind of go back into our DNA, go way back into our history. What was, what was this doctrine and spirit and discipline that gave birth to this movement that literally changed the world, right? Well, notice in the next chapter, in the next paragraph, what was their fundamental doctrine? That the Bible is the whole and the sole rule, both of the Christian faith and practice. Pastor Kurt and I and our congregation, we really believe that putting the scripture at the center of our lives is some of the most important things that we can do to grow in our faith. We have a many, many voices clamoring for our attention, clamoring for our uh, pocketbooks, clamoring for, if you will just do this, then you will be happy. No, it is the scripture that leads us to understanding what this life that God has made us for. They learned that religion is an inward principle, something that happens inside. Wesley's heart was what? Strangely warmed, right? It's something that happens inside. That religion is an inward principle, that it is no other than the mind, so it's this heart and mind thing, the mind that was in Christ, or in other words, the renewal of the soul after the image of God. We are cre- we were people created in the image and likeness of God to be God's representatives in the world. Like when you have done your things today, have you thought about yourself in that way? That as you go, when people look at you, do they think of God? That is what Methodism was seeking to restore in the lives of people. That they could actually be that kind of person. That is why, while blood is being shed all over France that the Methodists are saying, you know, there's a better way. And when people looked at them, they began to think of God. So in some ways, I feel that Wesley was a bit of a prophet. That first paragraph, that Methodism will continue as a dead sect, that we'll forget our doctrine, our spirit, our discipline, has come to pass. We have a bureaucracy in the Methodist Church that is absolutely out of control. We have bishops that answer not to doctrine, spirit, or discipline. And they certainly don't answer to you in the pews. And so we are having to make some decisions about how we go forward, how we retain the truth of this, and be faithful to you. Uh, Pastor Steve and I have shared on a number of occasions... He and I are not, well, I'll speak for myself. I'm not professional enough because I'm not distant from you as a congregation. I actually care about what happens to you guys. You're, you're more than my job. You're my people. You're my family. Uh, I think Wesley calls us to that. We want not to leave you in the hands of a dead sect, 
but to ensure that you have the power to have your own future decided. But if we're going to run out of time, let me show you, if I can, um, one last video. You want to show that one? Maybe we ought to skip it. Okay. I got a couple other things. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. That's we'll pick okay. up next week. That's all right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll show that next week. And, and so, so yeah. And so he talks about the scripture being the founda- the, the fundamental doctrine. Uh, and then, of course, we've already mentioned that that, in that word doctrine, that, that word doctrine should do something in you. And it should make you go, <sighs> what do you hear when you hear the word doctrine? Just say it. Doctor. Right? You hear doctor. Boring. What is your doctor supposed to do for you? Kill you slowly. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Come on. What is it supposed to do for you? Make you well. Make you whole. This is what our doctrine is supposed to do for us. To make us well. To make us whole. Scripture being in the center. And John Wesley was insistent that if the Methodist movement was anything, it was an attempt to return the church to the ancient way. The ancient church, the, the New Testament churches, over and over we talk about the New Testament church. And that, um, that, that and what the scripture taught was not pray this prayer and when you die you'll go to heaven. But it's pray this prayer. To begin drawing nearer to God so that you can be transformed and become more like Him. And that the world, because of your life, is then transformed to become more like Him. That's the doctrine of sanctification. Christian perfection. Being made perfect in love. And we'll talk more about that that later. Now, um, real quick, the, I mean, there's so much to this. Yeah, it's like, but, holy cow, what are we doing here? Um, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did not give power to the priests. In his time, right? He, he generally is, is pretty upset with them. What Jesus did was create disciples. He created these small groups. And from these groups would arise leaders. They were internalizing the Torah, the gospel, and they were sharing with other people. In a sense, what we did was steal that earlier idea and bring it forward. But that's okay. God likes that idea. For sure. And I think what we'll do, uh, Pastor Kurt, is then we'll just unpack ne- beginning next week just what he means when he says, hold fast to the doctrine. We'll, we'll talk about the spirit and the discipline. Uh, because that, that discipline and the spirit, that it is God that is at work in us, in our spirits. We can't do this work on our own. It is God that is in work in us through the, the spirit of God to transform us and to change us to be more like him. It's God's spirit at work. But we arrange our life. Disciplines. The Methodist, they arrange their lives through disciplines. Showing up to the preaching house at 5 in the morning before they went to work. And then they get beat up at work all day. And then what do they do when they go home from work? They go back at 7 o'clock so that they can be good to their kids. Right? And then they then and we'll just unpack all the disciplines that they were engaged in. Um, and we're not necessarily recommending the, us moving forward that we completely and fully embrace a five o'clock worship service and a seven o'clock worship service every day of the week. Because y'all would all run us off and we would all die. Uh, but anyway, uh, what what was at the heart of what was going on there? And what do we need to resurrect? From what that they were doing in Bristol, and they begin to spread all over the world those disciplines that place them in a position so God could change them. That's a Methodist. So George Whitfield, we'll talk about next time. He is the Billy Graham of the era. He is an extraordinary speaker. And remember, Wesley sort of gets a handoff from him. Whitfield goes to America. And he will have a tremendous impact on America. He is the most well-known person on the continent. And he's an English preacher. He comes over seven times. Uh, He will preach in revival that changes the world, in certainly America. Wesley, on the other hand, is a good speaker. He's, He's a good writer, if thick. But Wesley's great gift was his organization that Steve is talking about. Because we all think about, yeah, I want to be closer to God. I want to pray more. I don't read my Bible. Well, how the heck do you do it? Right. Whitfield would tell you, you've got to do it. 
And Wesley said, I actually drew up a list of 27 items you can do in order to, to do that. So that's, that's where we're getting into. We need both. And what I want to leave you with is that this tsunami of pietism has hit England. They've added stuff, and now it's coming to America. And it's going to hit the American shores and go all sorts of different directions. Much of what you understand about the church is developed at this moment. Much of America seeing itself as a Christian nation comes from this moment. Yes. You know, we were a godless nation before this. We really were. We were the dregs of society. We just wanted to get the next paycheck. What this, when the pietism hits, we see ourselves as a good nation, uh, people trying to take care of each other, uh, to be a light on the, the hill. This movement will foster a lot of the denominations that you know. The Baptists will eventually come for this. Church of Christ, Pentecostals, uh, Methodists, Presbyterians. I mean, it's, it's going to turn into a lot of different things, but it's still sort of this massive wave coming, and we'll, we'll pick it apart. We never have enough time. Um, but do you have questions? We yeah, don't want to leave question you or two? hanging. Yes, sir. We have a son who grew up here in Middle, born and raised in Middle. And after leaving home at Tennessee University, he now lives in Fort Worth. And Claire, because she attended church, we encourage him to go to the church. But his reason, he has started attending the Church of Nazarene in Fort Worth. Huh? And as I understand it, the Church of Nazarene was kind of offshoot of the message. Exactly so, yes. And I'm wondering if there are other denominations that came off or spun off of the message. There are so many, I can't list them. Um, I'll bring you a sheet, and it, again, it looks like a fire hose. Uh, so many denominations in the United States that come from the Nazarenes that sort of capture a little bit apart. The Nazarenes are known for the holiness uh, movement that obviously Wesley... Yeah, and so that's, that's, I think it's a great point that you bring up, is why does a denomination feel like they have to split away from the Methodist church? Because we forget who we are. Yep. And the Nazarenes, when they began, the reason that they, that the kind of their stick that they put placed in the sand was, we're going to be a church, not like the Methodist church now, that's going to be committed to sanctification, to holiness, that you can actually become more like Christ. Because they saw that the Methodist church as a whole was abandoning that. So that's where he's going back. Yeah, you know the 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 uh, Nazarenes often they get uh, branded as guess what radicals. Yeah. <laughs> so that's free. But we do want to leave you with this question: Are you who Christ intended for you to be? Sanctification word, I know it, and it's appropriate. It kind of scares me because you're in the process of becoming a saint. I love the Greek word that they use, teleos, for holy, and it just means you're complete. Mm -hmm. All the parts that God put in you are functioning the way that God wanted them to be. Right. Are you there? It haunted Wesley until he was 32, well, even what? Later, like thir 34, 35. 35, yeah. Um, five, yeah. Four. The answer to that question helped change America, change the West. And as we're going to follow any of this pietist tradition, we need to ask that. Are you really today who God wants you to be, who you were meant to be? What do we need to do to get you there? What do we need to do collectively? Uh, you know, is Midland the town that God wants it to be? Or can this church continue to do stuff to make it better? Can we open orphanages and schools and hospitals? Can we help single mothers? Can we help abuse victims? This is the question Wesley says is most important. All the history is fun. I love it. But ultimately, being holy people is what God cares about. So ask that in the mirror. So one of the things about our movement 
is that it was a movement that sang. <laughs> and so not always beautifully, mind you, but we do sing. We did sing. And so um, we're going to stand. Go ahead and stand. And we're going to sing a hymn. This is written by John's brother, Charles. And um, John Newton, y'all know John Newton, right? John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And so we're, and they had a relationship. John Wesley and John Newton knew each other. They exchanged letters. And um, we're going to sing this song to the tune of Amazing Grace. Not this. There we go. Here, just make me my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's sing. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me a heart resign submissive meek my great redeemer's throne where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone, a humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing true and clean which neither life nor death can part from Christ who dwells within next next verse that's it right here it it just won't go forward Ken oh man well the the last two verse go look that song up go look up that song oh for our heart to praise our God go look it up on your uh, online and and just notice how all the themes that Kurt and I have been talking about tonight, just notice how they come alive in that song. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm, and may he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen.